gosh, all of my unfounded opinions are just robbed out from under me. Ah, even that happens. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm Postdoctoral Research Associate at the Center. And today we're bringing you a third episode in our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a tumultuous year, and many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate what's worth saving in a post-2020 world. Today, we're joined by Kristen Cobus dumay Professor of History and Gender Studies at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Professor Dumay's research focuses on the intersection of gender, politics, and religion, and her most recent book is the much-acclaimed Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. In this book, Professor Dumay offers a survey of American evangelicalism over the past 75 years, documenting the culture of white militant masculinity that shaped the development of evangelical Christianity over the past several decades, and in large part contributed to the election of Donald Trump. In contemplating our role as faithful political thinkers in a post-2020 world, we at Critical Faith are especially eager to hear Professor Dumay talk about her research and what she's thinking about the road ahead. How could someone like Donald Trump represent not the abandonment, but the very fulfillment of evangelical Christian values? And in a world where Donald Trump is in many ways gone, but not forgotten, how can we begin to imagine a Christian faith beyond militant white masculinity? Let's find out. This past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in the light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we've seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year have affected our ways of thinking, and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in a faith tradition. 
I'm joined by guest co-host Abby Hofsted, a junior member at ICS whose research addresses questions of human agency and socioeconomic life. Today, Abby and I are continuing the conversation about Christian faith and political thought with our guest, Kristen Kobes dumay Professor of History and Gender Studies at Calvin University. Kristen, it's a real pleasure to have you join us on Critical Faith. Welcome here. Thank you. It's really good to be here with you. Um, yeah, we're very excited to talk to you. And a, a number of us here have gotten our hands on your on your uh, most recent book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, and it's caused quite a stir among us, um, as, I, as it appears to have caused um, in all sorts of places. So I thought we'd begin, I'd begin by asking you to talk just a bit about how, how the project for Jesus and John Wayne first took shape, and also whether there were any aspects of your research as you got into it that you found it unexpected and surprising. Sure. The idea for this book goes back more than 15 years, actually. I was a new professor at Calvin at the time. It was my first or second year, so it would have been 2005 or 2006. And I was teaching a U.S. survey course, and I gave a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. And I thought it was a great way to introduce my Calvin students to the idea of gender and how it worked in history, and specifically masculinity. And so I, I lectured on Teddy Roosevelt as the Rough Rider and, and showed them how masculinity was not just personal, but also political, how it was linked to broader economic shifts, how it was linked to uh, American power, American empire, and uh, to race. And uh, after that class, a couple of students came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. Uh, and, and that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, which was incredibly popular at the time. I had heard about it and just kind of, you know, rolled my eyes and thought, <laughs> not my thing. Uh, but I took their advice and I, I opened the book. And sure enough, right at the beginning, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And John Eldridge went on to sketch a very militant, militaristic conception of Christian manhood. God is a warrior God and men are made in his image. Every man has a warrior to fight. Uh, so this was in, again, 2005 or 2006, the early years of the Iraq War. And so I was seeing all this survey data coming my way uh, that white evangelicals were far and above more likely to support the Iraq War, uh, to support preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, to embrace a really aggressive foreign policy. And so I just started wondering, you know, what might one of these things have to do with the other? And so I started my research into evangelical masculinity and militarism. One thing in terms of surprise, I was surprised just how um, how disturbing what I was uncovering actually was. It was deeply misogynistic. It was, again, very um, militaristic, and it seemed to me to be um, unbiblical. And um, linked to that, I wasn't quite clear how... Um, how mainstream this all was. This was the Mark Driscoll era. And so I knew it was popular, but it still just seemed so extreme. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to consider it fringe. Um, so I thought, you know, does this really warrant, do I have to write a whole book about this? Um, so I just set it aside and, and figured I'd come back to it in time. And uh, over the ensuing decade, I watched, I didn't stop paying attention. I watched as one after another uh, evangelical leader who had been promoting this very militant conception of masculinity became embroiled in scandal, uh, abuse of power, and often sexual abuse. And so I, I just kept track. And it was in the fall of 2016 with the candidacy of Donald Trump and specifically the release of the Access Hollywood tapes, uh, where all of a sudden things clicked for me. And I realized that the evangelical support that we were seeing for Trump 
for an admitted abuser uh, was no aberration. We had seen this many times before, and that's when I kind of dusted off the old research and ended up writing Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah, that's interesting. So since since the book has come out, I'm just I'm just wondering whether you, what your response is to the reception that that it's gotten, and whether there's been anything unexpected about that. Like, are you are you surprised at all by the by how it's been taken up and how how widely it's been it's been taken up? I mean, when I was writing the book, I I had this feeling that it was really important. <laughs> you know, I was sitting with this research. I was I was pulling this all together uh, in 2017, 2018, 2019. And I was just watching what was happening around me. And I kept thinking, you know, I can explain this. I, 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 you know, I had the sources right in front of me and I just kept seeing, uh, these sources being validated in ways that were frankly horrifying, but I did feel like it was an important book that, uh, I was convinced was speaking powerfully into this moment. That said, the reception of the book still exceeded my expectations, particularly with respect to how it's been received within white evangelical communities. I think that's really the most surprising thing. It's uh, a rather harsh book. It, in some ways, it's been described by one reviewer as urgent and sharp-elbowed. And I really love that description. I think that's, that's accurate. It, it, there is an urgency here. And, uh, you know, I want people to know this history um, and, and I want people to grapple with this history, um, particularly those who have been complicit in it. Uh, and it is sharp elbowed. And that was also very intentional because one of the things that I had observed was time and again within evangelical communities, uh, the tendency to um, give deference to those in power. Um, deference that caused great harm, that enabled abuses to persist, abuses of all sorts. And so I think it, it was first instinctually, and then it was intentionally through the editing process to, to leave that voice as it was, to leave this, um, this urgency and this absolute refusal to show deference to those who wielded power and particularly to those who abused power. And I think that um, makes this book quite different from many books that evangelicals have written for evangelicals. And so uh, surprisingly, evangelicals, many have actually been incredibly receptive to this, they have received the book with uh really astounding humility. I, I within a, uh, a few days of the book releasing, I started getting letters from evangelicals saying, this is the story of my life. And thank you for helping me to see what I have been a part of. And I still get those probably five or six a day. And so again, the humility with which people are receiving this book really is remarkable. And, and that's something I hadn't anticipated. I anticipated much more pushback. You know, this is not who we are. I had no idea. This is not my faith. And instead, I'm hearing the opposite. I didn't fully understand, but I am complicit. And thank you. And now what can we do next? Yeah. So, um, Kristen, I was wondering if you would be able to just like briefly tell us a bit about how you define evangelical in your book. Um, and if you could comment briefly also on like whether uh, evangelicalism has a specific set of doctrines and like, if so, what are those? Yeah, that's one of the interventions that this book is making, really. It's it's uh, not accepting the standard definition of evangelical that evangelicals themselves have been um, putting out there. 
Uh, and then that evangelical scholars and then also scholars of evangelicalism have been repeating. And that is largely a doctrinal definition, a theological one. So, uh, you know, the Bebbington quadrilateral uh, for those interested in such things. Uh, historian David Bebbington suggested that an evangelical is uh, somebody who upholds the authority of the scriptures, uh, you know, focuses on the atonement of Christ, crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross. Uh, also conversionism, the need to be born again, and then also activism. So you're acting out of that faith. Uh, and instead, I, as a cultural historian, am not actually interested in um, offering the definitive <laughs> definitions of evangelicalism. I really want to describe the movement as I see it manifesting in history. And uh, the more I looked at my sources, and the more I talked with evangelicals themselves, the less convinced I became that theology narrowly defined really constituted the movement, the heart of the movement. Um, and I, I had to see evangelicalism more as um, a lived experience, as a cultural identity that was not entirely disconnected from theology, but it could not be reduced to theology. And so I started to see evangelicalism as a uh, consumer culture, as a group of individuals who were bound together um, and because of a common formation, spiritual formation, cultural formation, political formation, uh, because of uh, the, the religious products they were consuming. So Christian radio, James Dobson's focus on the family, uh, Christian publishing, again, we talked about Wild at Heart. That book sold more than 4 million copies. And that's just one book. Uh, and, and, you know, Christian television that ends up really shaping the values, um, and the spirituality of a huge swath of American Christians and then not just American Christians. Um, so, so I really, um, center this consumer culture. I then look at, well, what's the content that's being delivered there? And then I, I see evangelicalism more broadly as a as a series of networks of alliances. And so uh, churches are a part. Some denominations play a role here, um, but parachurch organizations, conference circuits, who is blurbing whose books, uh, distribution networks, what is Lifeway Christian Books selling and what are they not selling? Uh, these sorts of questions. Uh, so there's not a snappy definition of evangelicalism. It's more of a description in understanding then uh, with this kind of fluid um, uh, conception of evangelicalism, asking this question that I think originally kind of held me back, which is what what is the center of this movement? Where is the center? Where are the margins? How are the boundaries established and then enforced? Uh, those are the questions really that this book engages. So I'm, I'm actually not looking for a definition of evangelicalism. I'm simply trying to describe a cultural and religious movement. And, and, and that's where this book also differs. And, and that's where race comes in as well, because this is predominantly a white religious movement. And that comes to the fore only if you set aside kind of this narrow doctrinal definition. Um, and instead look at questions of fellowship, who's going to church with whom, who's, who's producing and consuming this particular, uh, you know, religious consumer culture. And that's where race, uh, becomes evident very quickly. Mm. Whereas with the traditional definition that evangelicals themselves like to um, put forth, uh, race, uh, really kind of disappears. 
I think really is that's really interesting what you say because my my next question was going to be like how does the culture of white masculinity fit within evangelical doctrine but I think he like you kind of described that already so <laughs> yeah so I I also want to ask you um so in your book, you show how new Calvinism sort of emerges as like a, a more meatier response to the softer side of evangelicalism. Um, and you note that this new Calvinism like rejected, de-emphasized certain elements of like the broader reform tradition uh, in several important ways. So, you know, no, they didn't uh, have infant baptism. They were less concerned about like covenantal theology um, and less nuanced on biblical inerrancy. Um, in, in favor of a theology of, you know, patriarchal pow power that emphasized God's vengeance, wrath, and the substitutionary atonement that took place on the cross. So it was really striking to me, but also really sickening um, the ways in which, like, the theological tradition that I grew up in can be used to bolster this sort of, like, militant white Christianity um, that has led to really horrific outcomes that you detail. Um, so... It's a problem that definitely does not respect national borders. It's a problem for us here in Canada, too. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about the connection of patriarchy to Calvinism and the reform tradition more broadly. Um, like, is there a necessary connection? Um, and also maybe potentially the ways in which you've seen those in the tradition resisting patriarchy. Yeah, this is a question that I'm still wrestling with on a personal level, really, because I, too, grew up in, uh, you know, Dutch Calvinist uh, communities. My dad is a theology professor. I um, you know, my mom is actually it was a Dutch immigrant and uh, yeah, I was just absolutely steeped in reformed uh, Christianity growing up. Uh, I didn't know if it was, uh, you know, it, it didn't strike me as patriarchal. In retrospect, I can see that it was, you know, it was very clear to me that despite my interests in religion and the intellectual life, that seminary was not, um, you know, an, a, a career path for me. And so mm -hmm. instead I went to study religious history, which is kind of telling, I think, <laughs> uh, no regrets on that front. But, you know, looking back, I can see that the choices that I made uh, were made with kind of uh, within constraints. And so at, at the same time, the reformed teaching that I really embraced as an undergraduate at Dort was uh, a different kind of reformed theology. It was much more expansive and inviting and and maybe not coincidentally, it was really presented to me that way through Dutch, uh, or sorry, uh, Canadian, well, Dutch Canadians actually who immigrated or who were teaching at door at the time, which, which is something I've given some thought to because the presentation of Christianity and of reformed Christianity, Christianity that I, uh, really embraced was not, uh, a Christian nationalist version. It was actually the opposite of that. I think, you know, one of my professors, John Vanderstelt, was still reacting against, uh, uh, you know, the kind of German Christian movement and his experience in the Netherlands and, you know, going back to the Second World War. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just being kind of, you know, strangers and pilgrims in the United States as, uh, you know, they weren't um, inclined to buy into the Christian nationalism that was taking hold within many Christian circles and certainly evangelical circles and also frankly, in some reformed circles as well. Um, so my introduction kind of as I was coming of age to reformed teaching was a kind of grace-filled reformed tradition. 
so again, my uh, one of the influential professors was John Vanderstel, and his favorite verse that he framed all of his teaching with was um, from Second Corinthians. You now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so it was kind of anti-scholastic, anti-legalistic, and it was instead just, uh, you know, what does it mean to live in the presence of God, to live before the face of God? Uh, it is a liberating experience. Now, imagine my um, reaction when I discovered that this is also the model uh, motto of Liberty University, of Falwell's Liberty University. It's like, oh, that's not what I meant by that at all. Uh, you know, uh, liberty or, or freedom can mean very different things in different contexts. But that was my immersion. And then uh, I left Dort and went to graduate school and started studying American religious history in earnest. And this was the time of the rise of, of New Calvinism. And, you know, John Piper was a big deal. I was in a graduate Bible study and the only thing that, you know, of course, we're reading John Piper. That's what that's what uh, people did uh, at that time. And and at first I was like, this is great. You know, we have the Gospel Coalition and stuff. And I'm like, these are my people. It's finally, you know, this this little, you know, sect that I'm coming from, you know, reformed Christianity. This is our moment to shine. And this is me. Right. This is us. And then in time, I realized this isn't really us. This is not me. I, I have very little place in in these spaces as a woman, mm-hmm. as somebody who has a, a more expansive understanding of, of what that verse means, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. Um, and I think that kind of explains a little bit of my engagement with this tradition in Jesus and John Wayne of um, this is not my kind of reformed tradition, unless it is, right? And that's the kind of wrestling that I have now mm-hmm. of kind of taking another look at the teachings that shaped me. And and I, just because the, the parts of the tradition that I really embraced were not the patriarchal and the harsher, you know, teachings doesn't mean that those aren't also there. And, um, and so I don't want to um, kind of excuse the Dutch reform manifestations of Calvinism uh, and when we look at its history in terms of racial justice, it is not a very um, edifying history, to say the least. Uh, when we look at its history of uh, kind of patriarchy, also, uh, we don't have an awful lot to work with there. So this is I'm still in the middle of uh, kind of understanding my own tradition and not just cherry picking the parts that I like, uh, but understanding uh, historically and culturally. So just to to continue this conversation about, you know, this doesn't represent my faith, but wait a minute, maybe it does. I think one thing that I find really compelling about your research is the way that it demonstrates the interrelation of masculinity, patriarchy, militancy, and nationalism, and whiteness. Because I, I don't think that's always uh, clear that those things kind of come, in many ways, come as a kind of package. So just to bring this conversation a bit even closer to home, we're in the midst of an institutional reflective process here at ICS. And while um, in many ways, this conversation was sparked by increased attention to systemic racism over, over the last number of months, your work challenges to pay attention to the intersection of race and gender, and more specifically, how whiteness and militant masculinity go hand in hand. So with that intersection in mind, I'm wondering what you think should be the role for Christian institutions of, of higher learning, such as ours, as we work against racism and sexism, especially given their their interrelation, um, and also like what blind spots should communities such as ours, even you know self-professedly progressive communities, be on the watch for? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, when I first, you know, started researching evangelical masculinity and militarism, I, I wasn't really focused on race, um, but I started to notice that all of the examples uh, given in these popular books on evangelical masculinity or just Christian manhood, uh, they, they they love to celebrate heroes. Uh, there's this long cast of characters of favorite heroes. And I mean, John Wayne is one of them, uh, but uh, cowboys and soldiers and warriors and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. And, and right, there's this the very familiar cast of characters from one book to the, the next. And at a certain point, it dawned on me that these were all white men uh, that were held up as heroes and sometimes even Confederate uh, generals uh, could make the list. Um, and, and that in many cases, they weren't just white men. Oh, and Teddy Roosevelt, of course, another favorite. Uh, they weren't just white men, but they were frequently like the case of Roosevelt or John Wayne, his on-screen persona. They were white men who were heroic precisely because they used violence to pursue righteousness, which often took the form of subduing non-white populations. And that non-white men in these narratives were often depicted not as heroes, in fact, almost never as heroes, never as militant heroes, but as threats, as potential threats, uh, Mexicans, Muslims, right? Uh, and, uh, or, you know, in terms of American law and order politics, you know, black men. And that was significant to me, uh, but you need to have eyes to see that. And, and that's the challenge here, that what I came to see is so much of white evangelical history or race in evangelical history tends to be unspoken. Once you, once you go past the, you know, the early sixties, maybe, um, then any explicit discussion of race generally disappears, but the values that evangelicals promote are have been formed in this deeply racialized context. So even take the idea of Christian nationalism, that in the United States, that America is a Christian nation, it was founded as such, and uh, then things started to go wrong. Um, usually they point to the 1960s. Just take that narrative for a moment and think about how it only makes sense if you are a white Christian, right? If you are a black Christian, uh, what? You know, America was a Christian nation until the 1960s when everything fell apart, right? Right, right there. Uh, you, you realize just how deeply racialized that conception of Christian America is, of Christian nationalism. And yet Christian nationalism really undergirds this entire militancy and culture wars politics. Uh, you can look at the history of, um, evangelical opposition to uh, school desegregation as foundational to the rise of the religious right. And yet that was rarely defended in those terms. Instead, you hear a lot of talk about um, protecting parental authority, getting rid of the, the interference of big government, uh, of the federal government. Well, contacts, right? What was the federal government interfering with? It was interfering with keeping school is segregated. Um, so, so you need to have the eyes to see um, both historically and then also in the present, the legacies of some of these values that have been deeply formed in this racialized context and not just racialized, but really to, to support and promote white supremacy. Just put it bluntly. Um, but it's not uh, explicitly stated so that now the challenge is many white evangelicals uh, and many white Christians honestly do not believe they are racist. Uh, they have no ill will that they are aware of towards people um, who look different. 
And yet their entire value system has been shaped in this context. And so conversations are really hard to have because people will very quickly get defensive. You know, you're accusing me of being racist. You're, you know, what are you even talking about? You don't know me. And, and then there's now this cause in conservative circles too, to uh, resist any conversations around systemic racism. Uh, and so that has become this kind of trigger for uh, that, that shuts down conversations too. And that's where I think history really is necessary. Uh, it, it, you don't, you don't need a lot of theory. You just need to understand what happened. And, and then that frees us up to start asking better questions. So, so that was a long preamble to get to what, what should institutions be doing now? Um, they should be asking a lot of questions and not bringing many answers if they are white dominated institutions. They should be listening to other voices because it can be very hard for those on the inside to see these patterns and to see where values that seem perfectly racially neutral are in fact not um, because, and that's privilege, right? Uh, that if you are um, in positions of power, you have the luxury of defining your views as simply Christian as, you know, or maybe just reformed or just, you know, right, correct, true. And, um, and it's, it's those on the outside of these systems, of these communities, of these cultures who can say, Actually, let me tell you how these teachings, how these truths sound in, in our circles, um, how they might uh, reproduce systems of oppression or even violence. And, and you need to be willing to listen to that and not just immediately say, but that's not what we mean by it, right? Uh, because uh, it, it may or may not be what you consciously mean by it, but that has nothing to say uh, whether or not you're, you're actively perpetuating these systems. In fact, you are by refusing to acknowledge um, how they come across to others. Um, so for predominantly white institutions, it is tough. I'm, I'm a member of Calvin University. And, you know, we have all sorts of statements on racial diversity and, you know, from every nation. And, you know, this is, we have plans and we have anti-racism training. We have all of that. And at the same time, we are holding, you know, very firmly to our religious heritage, um, that we you know, reformed Christianity. And, and that is good. But it is, it can be not good if we can't also rigorously interrogate how our, you know, quote unquote, theological tradition has never been purely a theological tradition. It has always uh, been a cultural and an ethnic and a racial tradition as well. And I think there's too often this tendency to want to, to protect and defend the brand, uh, to, uh, you know, make us look good. And, and I think we on the inside ought to be our own most rigorous critics. Uh, and we can only do so if we, if we bring the voices of others into these conversations and, and, and amplify those voices. So it's tough. It's tough to do this, um, because there's a lot, uh, at risk, um, personal power, institutional power, and just feeling good about yourself are all, you know, at stake here. Um, but if we really want to work towards uh, justice and equality, uh, then I think we need to be willing to take those risks. That, yeah, that's really helpful and and compelling. And I think what you offer there is a really powerful reminder of the fact that, you know, once 
once you've paid attention to the history, you know, the history of, of one's own faith tradition, or, you know, in this case, the history of evangelical Christianity, it's, it's kind of impossible to assert that something's Christian without also implicitly, you know, saying something relating to race and, and gender. You know, like there is no racially neutral, gender neutral Christian theological standpoint. Yeah. You're making a, a claim one way or the other, right? And I think your work, um, as you say, there's not much theory. It's just a really nice story that shows how these things are interwoven and, and brings us to our current context. So in this, um, this series of the podcast, we're turning our eyes specifically to our current political landscape. And one area in which your work stands out in this connection is the way that it urges us to notice the power of culture, you know, for example, over economic explanations of Donald Trump's popularity, and especially like anxieties among white men about potential displacement. And you say at one point in your book, you, know, you say fears about cultural displacement far outweighed economic factors when it came to support uh, for Trump. In short, support for Trump was strongest among white Christian men. The election was not decided by those left behind economically, political scientists discovered. It was decided by dominant groups anxious about their future status. And I thought that was really interesting. And so given, among other things, recent events like uh, CPAC or the sort of back and forth among Republicans in the wake of um, impeachment trials, what, what do you think we're to do with, with groups of Christians kind of doubling down on their support for Trump and his positions? Or, or even the lingering of Trumpism in general. Um, I guess, first of all, like, do you hear a voice worth paying attention to here? Or is there, is there something there that we should notice? And if so, how, how do you envision we begin to dialogue with that voice? Yeah, uh, dialogue is very difficult, very difficult across these differences. Um, I mean, we're, we're working across really different sources of information that define very different realities right now. Um, but a couple of thoughts on that. One, I, I think that identity does matter and that we are dealing not with uh, kind of rational impulses so much as uh, a sense of identity, of belonging, and that that's a powerful motivator for people. And so I think a lot of the dialogue that people tend to have focuses on the rational elements when that's really not what's at play here. And so I think it's tough. It's tough because I'm a rationally oriented person and I like to argue and I like to, you know, like, <laughs> oh, come on, let's look at, let's open the Bible together here, right? Let's, right. let's read these passages, explain this, explain that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there needs to be a place, a community that will welcome people. And this comes down to relationships and it, it comes down to affirming parts of people's identity, but in a much more, um, wholesome way in a, in a way that um, gives people a space to be who they are in in a way that isn't oppositional in a way that you know welcomes people into loving one's neighbor into you know finding a place to to be valued and that's really tricky and i i don't really know how to do that on the level of a national discourse because i think it is also very important to uh, name what's happening right now and that that can again come across as rather um, harsh or sharp elbowed. I think that that truth telling is important, but then on a personal level in our relationships, I think that, uh, I think that love really, really matters. I think that love and respect across differences that endures despite differences is probably, uh, when you hear about how people end up changing their minds, it's not usually that they got it argued out of them, but because they were received in a loving way by people who felt differently and who gradually slowly pointed them that there's another way to be. Um, so that's 
that's something on a, on a kind of individual level. However, I would also point to, you mentioned CPAC. Um, we can talk the Republican Party. And what I see happening there is toxic. And it reminds me very much of what I have seen in evangelical communities and what I continue to see. And this gets back to that point I made about deference to authority. It has been astounding to see how very few Republicans have spoken out against what they have perceived to be wrong within their own party. So Justin Amash did, and he's out of the party and he's out of Congress. Uh, you know, uh, Ben Sass did a little bit, a little bit more, tried to do it again, and then still made nice, still made nice. And you've got Mitt Romney and, you know, but really on one hand, you can, you can count the Republicans who have really said, no, this is not okay. And the pressures to conform must be enormous, but that doesn't mean that we can't expect our members of Congress, our leaders, that we can't expect each other to say what needs to be said, again, even if it comes at great cost. And I've been talking with a lot of evangelicals in the last uh, year or so. And I've been talking with many who have paid that cost, with pastors who have said, no, I need to preach out against Christian nationalism. I need to preach out against what I am seeing as a corruption of the faith. And many of them end up losing their jobs. Uh, I've talked with members of evangelical organizations who the entire leadership is incredibly troubled by what they're seeing, but they feel the pressure not to alienate their subscribers or their donors or their constituents. Um, Christian universities, this is also the case, right? That there are so many pressures right now to not uh, anger or alienate uh, people who hold power. So money is very much a part here. And then you can justify it so easily. Well, we have to protect the witness. We have to protect all of the good that this organization is doing. Pastors saying, you know, I don't want to lose. It's, it's not about my job, they say, but I don't want to lose the ability to minister to this flock. I get that. And then at a certain point, you have to ask, but are you actually, have you not already lost that power if you do not feel that you can speak truth anymore? Because that's what this comes down to. And so on that front, I think that we, we need more courage all around, top to bottom. We need institutional courage and we need a willingness to pay the price. We need personal courage that, again, you can speak the truth in love but you still need to speak the truth and that that may involve uh, alienating friends, family. Uh, it may put your livelihood at risk. But when I look back at the last half century of American Christian history, I can't help but think if if more of us had been doing this more faithfully with more courage along the way, I think we wouldn't have ended up where we are now. And so now it's an urgent situation. And now the cost will be very high for many. But the good news is th there is another side to this. I, I, I know many people have lost their jobs by speaking out and not one of them regrets doing so. I know of many people who have really harmed personal relationships, lost some relationships over speaking out, even very cautiously. And I also know that they have found really amazing community by doing so uh, that, you know, you're, you're not alone on the other side of, of this either. And the community is still forming. The institutions are not there yet, but it seems to me a moment of, of possibility 
um, but, but some things need to fall apart before new things can be nurtured and built. Yeah, so I'm really struck by um, what you talk about when you say like protecting the brand. Um, because I think that like speaks to exactly what you're saying about like evangelicalism as like this sort of like consumer culture identity. And I'm just really fascinated by that because I, I felt those impulses too. like we want to make like Christians look good or something like that. So I'm wondering, like, if we can go sort of beyond the brand, like what alternative visions do you imagine for evangelicalism beyond white patriarchy? Are there, you've kind of spoken about it already, but are there compelling instances that you've been made aware of since writing this book of Christian communities that have been shaped by different narratives that might offer us, you know, some kind of witness uh, to ways that things could be otherwise from this like sort of inevitability of this white masculine militant uh, evangelicalism? Yeah, when we're talking about white patriarchy, we're really talking about power. And I, I really think this book comes down to power and to the relationship between Christianity and power. And, and so what I look for isn't even first and foremost, patriarchy. Uh, it, it's how does a community understand uh, what it means to follow Christ? Who is Jesus to them? Who is God? Is God a warrior God who's going to lead you? Yeah, Jesus is going to lead you into battle. Right? That, that's, <laughs> there's a lot of that in this book. And that really shapes uh, you know, who you are, what it means to follow that Christ mm. or is the Jesus of the gospels, you know, a story of God divesting himself of power and offering himself as, as an atonement. And, you know, that to follow that Christ means to take up your own cross and to, uh, to follow a servant Christ, not a servant leader, because that's just, I'm not a big fan of that whole servant leadership discourse. I think it's thinly veiled grasp for power and not in every case, certainly, but that's, that's how it's too often wielded, especially when it's wrapped up in the assertion of patriarchal power and white patriarchal power, which it generally is. But what does it really mean to, to follow, uh, you know, the Jesus of the gospels? And in my understanding of Christianity is that it was a radical counterpoint to kind of human conceptions of power, to understandings of who the Messiah was and ought to be. Um, and it's not easy to follow this Christ at all. It's totally uh, right. I'm a Calvinist. It's counter to our human nature to do so. We are pulled to grasp and aspire and and um, to become dominant. And the whole point of Christianity is to turn that on its head. And so that's the model of power that I would look for. Um, so where is that? It certainly exists. It exists within evangelical churches where that's not the leading model. It, it exists, you know, on, in individual cases. It exists outside of white evangelicalism. And this is something that I find even now with very well-meaning and convicted white evangelicals still this tendency to think that the fate of Christianity rests on white evangelicals getting things better. And uh, because white evangelicals have, have long situated themselves as, you know, the most faithful Christians, they are the faithful remnant. They are the ones who are really getting it right. Now, I did the same growing up in reformed, uh, you know, circles. We got it right. I still, you know, kind of have, carry that with me. So there's nothing unique to white evangelicals, but I think it's worth stating in this moment that uh, if you are really 
uh, convicted that there is something deeply wrong, you know, at the core of white evangelicalism, especially in America today, then um, how do you fix that? And are those who are currently in leadership the best ones to trust with that fix? Uh, more power to them if they if they feel called. But uh, you know, just make sure you fully understand the problem, fully understand your complicity in the problem, and then question uh, why you're rushing to fix things. But if it's because you think that the fate of Christianity rests on this, then you need to step back. Um, and my advice is to to step outside of white evangelicalism. A white evangelicalism has long drawn boundaries and reinforced those boundaries of orthodoxy, who are true Christians. And the walls that they build are, are quite high and sometimes seem impervious. And that some of those walls are defined by race. You need to go outside of those walls. And what you're going to find is that, guess what? Christianity is flourishing outside of white churches. So go spend some time there and just listen and learn. Um, think about all of the folks that you've excluded, actively, personally excluded uh, from your religious spaces and go listen to them, go to their spaces and learn from them. And any kind of rebuilding effort should not be rushed. And again, it maybe should not be done by those currently in power. And maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be done at all. Maybe if Christianity is flourishing in other spaces, this is a time to go and join and be discipled in those spaces rather than trying to create new empires of your own. Uh, so that's, I mean, it's really difficult. I'm a historian. I'm much better at describing what I've seen than in offering advice in the present moment. But that's kind of where my thinking pulls me in those directions. Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. That's so powerful. Uh, so I finally just want to ask, what's next for you? What issues or questions um, that like have arisen from this research that are now especially pressing that you want to continue to like investigate and uncover? I, well, I find myself, you know, pulled into these conversations right now within evangelicalism much more than I had anticipated and, and speaking into uh, the what's next question. So I will continue to do that um, much as I just have here. Uh, but also one of the things that interests me, I, I won't be doing this as a research project, but I would love for somebody else to really investigate this, particularly somebody trained in ethnography. I would love to understand better um, the dynamics within faith communities what makes it possible for within individual families and churches and communities for some Christians to um, like wholly embrace this kind of Trumpian version of Christianity? And I've traced that, like I get how that works. But then what explains for their sister or their daughter or son or, you know, the fellow church member who's looking at this with horror and saying, how could you, how could this have happened? You know, what dynamics explain how individuals, you know, end up embracing one ideology over another. I would, I would really like to understand those dynamics better. I think we need to understand those dynamics better. Also, the, the question of, of power dynamics within evangelical institutions. I've just been blocking on that some and, um, saying things that seem really obvious to me that I realize people haven't been saying, um, just raising the issues of how power functions in uh, Christian organizations, in uh, the pressures to stay silent uh, and the pressures to conform, um, all the ways in which the silence is justified or coerced 
And that seems to me incredibly unhealthy. And we need to make this coercion visible. We need to make this silencing visible. And again, it will come at great cost, but so much has and is currently being swept under the rug. So we need to really deal with our own institutions and organizations with transparency and with brutal honesty. And um, that's usually not popular. <laughs> and I realize that, uh, but we just need to do it. Uh, and then my own um, kind of next research is kind of the flip side to Jesus and John Wayne in some ways. In Jesus and John Wayne, I explore in one chapter in particular, and then occasionally throughout the book, the role of Christian womanhood, Christian femininity in supporting these patriarchal structures. And, um, but I, this is a book essentially on, on masculinity. And so I didn't have the space to fully explore that, particularly up to the present. And so my next book is going to do that. It's a cultural history of white Christian womanhood and it's called Live, Laugh, Love. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I am so, it is so much fun. And so yeah, it takes this, uh, you know, religious and gendered consumer culture of inspirational fiction and mommy blogging and HGTV and all of that, and then analyzes it in terms of neoliberalism, post-feminism, and white supremacy. Wow. I cannot wait to read that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of reflecting on the history of our of our faith communities and also looking ahead to the future. Um, so thanks very much, Kristen, for joining us. No, no, really. Thank you for this conversation. It was it was really just great questions. And it's really good for me to to explore some of these issues also, you know, a little bit more personally uh, connected to my own faith tradition and connected to institutions that I care about. So so thank you for this opportunity. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Andrew, what's your pleasure? Well, Danielle, uh, my pleasure is something that's been a kind of constant pleasure throughout these pandemic times where we haven't really been able to go anywhere, which is uh, the rail path near where I live. So I live out in, uh, I guess, between Bloordale and the Junction um, in Toronto. And there's a couple of railways that run past um, where we live. And one of them has a, has a sort of pathway parallel to the, to the railway. So it's called the rail path. And it's this really nice little strip of, of a path that has you know, a lot of trees alongside it. And it's this kind of a rural feel in the middle of a big city. So I grew, I grew, up, in, I grew up in Niagara. So I grew up around farmlands and um, kind of miss that a little bit living in Toronto. So this this path though is a kind of little strip of rural Niagara feeling kind of area in the middle of a big city. Um, and I've I've taken a walk along the along the rail path pretty much every day since the pandemic started because you know not being able to go anywhere else um, and wanting to get outside of the house as much as I can every day. So that's been a it's grateful to have that uh, as a place to go. So that's me. What about what's your what's your pleasure? Um, my pleasure is. My plants, basically, my house plants have been my pleasure, or they've been growing into my pleasure. <laughs> nice. So the other day uh, was repotting day, so got some new soil and shifted some of my plants that I had cut, and then been re-rooting into pots of their own, 
and given them their new home on the windowsill. And so far, everyone seems happy. But it was a whole production of, you know, dirt all over the place in the kitchen and chopping some wildly overgrown branches off of Charles Taylor, my little pothos. Not so little. And starting some new cuttings and just finding homes for things. So I've not gone full plant crazy, but I uh, have been appreciating having some plants that are kicking into life again now that spring has come. So related. Also got some hyacinths and tulips the other day from the local florist and having that little burst of color has been very nice. That's it for our show this week. Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask our friends and colleagues to reflect on political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in reading Kristen's book, Jesus and John Wayne, it's published by Live Right Publishing Corporation and is available through many online retailers and local booksellers. If you'd like to keep the conversations going, sign up for one of our online courses this summer. Courses like The Soul of Soulless Conditions, Marxists on Christianity, Christians on Marxism, with Dean Detloff taking place in the evening from April 20 to May 27th, or Pragmatism, Race, and Religion, with Ron Kuyper is running from June 8 to July 15. To find out more about these or any of our other courses, or about our discounted auditing fees and course credit options, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Kristen as at kkdumay, you can follow me as at Beware the Yeti, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Tell your friends.